Genesis 38, verses 1 through 30 this morning. And before we look at God's word, let me again pray and ask for his blessing on it. Father, we again cry out to you and we come to you as the um, neighbor in your parable, Lord Jesus, who came to his neighbor begging for bread and knocking and knocking until he finally received bread. And we come knocking this morning and we acknowledge that we have no bread and we pray that you would give us the bread from heaven. We pray even as this uh, very uh, difficult and challenging portion of scripture is read and preached that you would give us the bread of life that came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to see him in the scriptures, the one who said that all the scriptures were about him, and we pray, our God, that we would be changed and drawn to him, and that we would come in faith and in repentance, and that we would flee to him and embrace him and trust him more and grow in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would do a great work in establishing us in Jesus Christ as your word is read and preached this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at Genesis 38. We have begun, you'll remember, uh, the life of Joseph last week. Genesis chapter 37 transitioned us into that final section in the book of Genesis. And now we have this sort of interlude. And then we will pick back up on the life of Joseph. And this is that account of Judah and Tamar. And now Moses records for us. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughters, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in she- Shezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste, and I'll say for the sake of the children, the seed on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remarried and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is in the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered Her face, he turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. 
Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was brought out. So she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out the hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, I like to imagine if I had grown up in a Jewish home sometime during the Old Testament period and I was in the local synagogue and they were teaching through the Bible and I realized that that history was also my genealogy and that I was learning about my family history. I was learning about my great, 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 great grandfather, perhaps, if I was from the tribe of Judah and my great, great, great grandmother Tamar, I would probably run home and want to have a sit-down conversation with my parents about why we have not discarded this part of our genealogy. I doubt that any of you would find tucked away in the attics of any of your um, progenitors a box with a history of any of your um, ancestors who had this sort of blemish in it. And yet, that's important for us because this is the genealogy of King David. And this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so it becomes one of the most important chapters in the history of all of redemption. It is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And yet, sadly, it's a chapter because of its nature that is often tucked away or skipped over in sermon series. Very few men will come to this because we have this sort of social decorum and we think that we're better than listening to things like this. And yet God in his infinite wisdom has put this in the Bible for our sanctification and for our redemption. And I I would just note as we come into this chapter that it would have been very easy for King David sitting on the throne to order an edict to do away with this part of his history And yet he understood how crucial this aspect of his history was to God's plan of redemption. As we come into this section and and we look at its place in the book of Genesis, it's odd because it's an an interlude. It's it's an intermission, as it were, in between the history of of Joseph. We've, We've looked at how God has transitioned to Joseph and what his brothers have done to him and how he's been sold off as a slave. And and you're left wondering what happened to Joseph if you stop in chapter 37. You're left wondering what happened to Joseph. 
and you're left hanging. And now the camera goes back and it's sort of, in the words of one writer, it's sort of a back at the farm, back at the farm moment. And now we're going back to the family and, and the camera is focusing in on Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, the one who should have been the next in line to be the covenant head. Remember, it was Jacob who made Joseph the next in line because Reuben had done what he had done with Jacob's wife and because Simeon and Levi had done what they had done to the Shechemites for defiling their sister. And yet here, Judah, who should have been the next in line to represent the covenant family and should have been the next in line to to lead the purpose of God and bringing about the promises of God at this point in redemptive history is seen leaving the home. And he's seen going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into rebellion and sin. And then what we see in this chapter is God marvelously manifesting his grace and showing how he gives grace to the greatest of sinners and he accomplishes his greatest purposes in the most rebellious and wicked and messed up lives of individuals. Now, William Still, reflecting on this chapter and asking the question, why show so much depravity? Why, why, show, much, so, why show so much evil and rebellion? And William Still says, isn't that, isn't that the mystery of grace? That if God is going to choose and he is going to place his mercy and grace on individuals and we're all sinful and all descended from Adam and all fallen and all rebellious, that he would manifest that grace in the worst of sinners rather than in the best of sinners. Isn't that, isn't that in keeping with God's marvelous plan of grace that he would manifest that grace in the life of the worst? And Judah, we'll see here, is certainly looking like the worst. We're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to consider Judah's sin and look at that, the steps and the progression and the impact. And then secondly, we're going to consider the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of Judah's sin and the greatness of God's grace. Well, we are told at the outset in verse one that it happened that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. You might skip over this if you were just reading hastily and you might miss that the first step in Judah's rebellion is that he went down from his brothers. Now, remember last week we said this is the patriarchal family, but this is the church. This is the only church on earth. This is the old covenant church of God. This is the church to whom the redeemer will come. These are the covenant people. These are the professing believers. These are the ones to whom God gave his word and his promises and his worship and revealed himself and taught them everything that they needed to know of all the people on the face of the earth. This is the only church that God has set apart for himself. And now Judah is leaving the church. That's the impact of Genesis 38.1, when it says, it happened at that time, Judah went down from his brothers. He is now leaving the place of God's revelation. He is leaving the place of God's mercy. Now, I think it's instructive to us because I grew up in a Christian home and I left. My life in many respects, though different in its outworking, was much like Judah's. Judah is leaving the church and that is the first step That is the first step toward the manifestation of the evil in his heart and his life that he will then act out as he goes to the world. 
He pulls away from everything that God had said. Remember, Jacob had been trying to get back to the promised land, back to Bethel, back to obeying the Lord and being where God had revealed himself and where God wanted him and where God wanted him to trust him and to wait on him and to look expectantly to the city that had foundations. And here Judah is going away from that and he is going to the world. And there's a warning here. There's a warning no matter what age you are. There's a warning certainly for children who grow up in Christian homes. A great warning. And there is a warning for anyone who professes faith in Jesus. You know, I, I, I think it's a, it is a sure mark that we are in spiritual danger the second we stop going to worship faithfully. We stop fellowshipping with God's people faithfully. We stop sitting under the ministry of the word faithfully. That is a sure mark that we are in spiritual danger. And the more people do it, and it usually happens that people do that, and then they realize, well, nothing's really happening to me, so we just won't go more and more and more and more and more, and then we'll take on this and this. We get involved in this and this. And remember Jesus' parable. Many were invited to the kingdom, but they said, I've married a wife. I can't come. I bought a field. I can't come. All in themselves, good things. And yet excuses that people make, and they depart from the people of God, and they suffer the consequences. And Judah will experience that in this section. As Judah's sin begins to unfold, we see that he secondly befriends the world. Notice, he goes down and he turns aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. He binds himself to a unbelieving friend. Now, now, let me say this at the outset. It is not only not wrong, it is right that we have unbelieving friends. In fact, if you do not have unbelieving friends that you are seeking to win to Jesus, there is something wrong. But it is altogether wrong and dangerous to bind yourself to the unbelieving world and to friendships with the unbelieving world in an unchecked, unspiritual way. Just to have fellowship with the world. The Apostle John says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? Here, Judah, who's coming from the family in which the light of the gospel is manifested, is going to the world, is binding himself to worldly friends. And he is going to suffer the consequences. This Hira, the Adulamite, is going to be with him through the entire account. He will surface with him. You get the sense that this is Judah's best friend, this pagan Canaanite unbeliever is Judah's best friend. He is taking counsel from him. He is walking with him. He is probably doing business with him. He is devising plans with him. Judah has bound himself to the world. He has left the church. He has joined the world. And now notice what he does in verses two through five. He marries an unbelieving wife. Notice that Moses tells us Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went into her. She conceived, bore a son. He called his name Ur. She had another son, he called his name Onan. She had another son, he called his name Shelah. Now, I want to say this this morning, because inasmuch as I would press on you the absolute necessity of not departing from the visible church, where the word of God is preached in truth, and inasmuch as I would warn us of the danger of befriending unbelievers in a non-spiritual way, in a non-spiritually minded way, I would warn everyone in here of the danger of either marrying or allowing your children to marry unbelievers. That might be the most politically incorrect thing today to say that, but it is the most biblically foundational thing. It is everywhere in the scriptures. There's not one instance 
where a believer marries an unbeliever, anywhere in the Bible that anything good comes out of it. And in every single case, pure religion and the truth of the gospel is perverted and lost. And the consequences are severe. They were severe in Judah's life. They will be severe in your life. They will be severe in the life of your children. And so we would do well to take to heart what is being said here. He marries this uh, Canaanite woman, and he has children with them. Now, we are going to very quickly see the effects of Judah's sin here. Um, No sooner are we told about these sons that we're told that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. But notice what Moses says in verse 7. He says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, we don't know what Ur's sin was. Um, We also will see that Onan, his second son, is wicked in what he does, and we'll talk briefly about that. Um, We're not told here that Judah was a bad father, but we will see that he was, and that this is a result of him being a bad father. And, and that, should, that should not be a surprise to us, should it? I mean, he's been a bad member of the covenant family. He's, he's fallen from the role he should have fulfilled in the patriarchal family. So as an individual, he has been wicked. He has then bound himself to others. He has then um, run to the world and married a pagan wife and had children by her. And so there's no reason we would think he was a godly father. There's no reason to think that Judah is teaching his three sons about the covenant Lord and the covenant promises that he grew up listening to. There's no reason to think that any of that is happening. And in fact, I'm going to argue this morning that we know that Judah was not a good father because of what he says after Onan dies about his third son and his relationship to Judah's daughter-in-law, Timnah, I mean, I'm sorry, Tamar, when he says to her, essentially, my first two sons died because of you. He made her a superstitious whipping post. You see, he blamed the sin of his sons on Tamar. He blamed their death on her, but see, notice what Moses says. Moses says in verse 7, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I do want to say this this morning. If you're wondering, does the Lord do that still today? Does that still happen? Someone is given over to such great wickedness, the Lord would put them to death. I would say, don't be so quick to think he doesn't. Don't be so quick to think he doesn't. You have the account of... Um, Adonira and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who lie to the Holy Spirit and God strikes them down. That's New Covenant. That's New Testament. And so there is a grave warning here. Judah's sin is now uh, manifesting itself as him falling as a father and it's, and it's bringing consequences into his home. And, and notice as this story develops, we now move into this account where um, you have Tamar, who was Ur's wife, Judah's daughter-in-law. And, and you have to understand that this is set in a culture in which widows were absolutely dependent at every age on the support of their husband, on the support of their families, and that God had provided these sort of safeguards and checks and balances. There was no welfare. There was no financial aid. There were no jobs for Tamar to go get. And one of the things the Lord provided, and we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, is what is called the Leverite marriage law. Now, 
This law, and you can read that yourself, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. This law was for widows in a society where there was no external support. And what God had said is if a woman had a husband and he died and he had a brother who had not yet wed, that brother was to marry his sister-in-law and was to provide for her and was to keep a namesake for her, was to establish the, the inheritance. Now, this is super important to get this. This is super important because it doesn't make sense for us today. And so if you're thinking, what, what cash value does that have for me? None. Listen. This is covenantal history. And God had promised to give an inheritance to his people. There were land inheritances. There was a namesake. All of that was preparing us for Jesus Christ and the heavenly inheritance. But in redemptive history, God had secured these things. And if if there was no husband, if there was no father in this representative society, there was no more inheritance. There were no children to keep the namesake going and to keep the inheritance in the family. And so God, in his kindness, gave this law. And we see that this law is intact already in Genesis 38. Somehow, they know about this, this law that will manifest itself later. And, and, and Judah here is the only, <laughs> it's actually the only time he ever does anything right in the whole chapter until the end. Judah tells his son Onan, go in, marry Tamar, and raise up children. And so you think, okay, maybe we're getting some redemption here. And notice the words here. Notice um, in verse 9 what is said. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so every time he went into his wife, he made sure that she would not get impregnated. Every time he went into Tamar, he made sure that she would not be able to have a child. Because he knew that the child would not be his. Um, There are two things happening in Onan in his heart and his mind. One of those things has respect to his own selfishness, and one of those things has respect to the Lord. Now, why does Onan do what he does? Well, the first is clearly stated there. He knows that the child will not be his. He knows that if there are three sons that get the inheritance from their father, that he gets less. So if all three sons have children and that inheritance gets passed down and divided up, he gets lost. He would rather have a bigger portion, so he will not raise up offspring for Tamar. But there's something more important going on in the text. It's something you wouldn't see on a face value reading. There's something so absolutely significant about this. Remember, if you were a Jew, and this is where we have to try to put our minds back into covenant revelation here, and, and God has revealed in Genesis 3 that of the seed of the woman, he was going to crush the head of the serpent. He was going to send a redeemer. And that redeemer who would come and, and undo everything that Adam did and do everything that Adam didn't do and would come and would conquer the one that had conquered man, would come and would redeem a people to himself, would be the everlasting redeemer, that he would be born of a woman, and that as that seed promise is carried down from Adam through Noah to Abraham, God says that seed is going to come from Abraham's descendants. He is going to be an Israelite. And then we know, because we've read past there, that it's going to move through Judah's line. We know that the redeemer is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And if you were an Israelite family and you didn't know about the virgin birth and you didn't know that the Holy Spirit would overshadow the Virgin Mary and enable her to conceive in the womb so that Jesus would be born of an earthly mother and yet without an earthly father. And you know the promise of redemption is built entirely on God sending a woman, an offspring who would be the redeemer, then every generation of Israelites who were believing should have thought, is this the one? Is this child the one? Is this child the one? Will this child be the redeemer? Will this child be the redeemer? But here Onan has absolute disregard to the promise of God. He doesn't care that God has said, be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't care about a coming redeemer. He is, he is exercising absolute self-pleasure. Onan is just seeking to please himself. He just wants sexual pleasure. He doesn't care about the needs of his widowed sister-in-law. He doesn't care about her right to have part of the inheritance. He doesn't care about the word of God. He doesn't care about the promises of God. And he doesn't care about the gospel and the need for redemption. And so God kills Onan. God kills her. God kills Onan. And it's interesting, isn't it? The God who stands back in unveiled light that neither I can see um, before whose presence we would all be consumed is, is, is allowing sin to fester in the covenant line in the tribe of Judah. And he's allowing it to work and then he stops it at different points. And, and he's, he's pushing his purposes through. Even in Judah's sin, even in Onan's sin, even with regard to Tamar, we'll notice Judah's sin continues and and it moves from him being a wicked individual to an apostate as it were to a bad father and now we see that Judah is just as sexually immoral as his son Onan we told we're told that after his wife dies in verse 12 we're told in the course of time Judah's wife she was daughter died when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her garments. She covered herself with a veil. She acted as a prostitute. She knew that he was passing by. And we're told in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. He turned to her. He said to her, come, let me come into you. And he went into her and acted in sexual immorality. Now, to understand that this is not just a, a tragic one-time fall for Judah, and to get that Judah just didn't have a bad day, because you might think, well, maybe Judah just had a bad day. He slipped up, lost all sense of reason, all sense of godliness, and this was just one of those, man, how could I have ever done that moments in his life? Keep in mind the fact that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, knows what kind of person he is. This is very important. She knows just how wicked Judah is. She knows that if she acts like a prostitute, Judah will come into her. And that he is so driven now by lust and immorality, and she knows what kind of man he is, that she knew that the plan would work. And she knew he would fall for it. And she knew that he is so wicked that he would even not uh, suspect who it was, or wonder who it was he was going into, that he was so full of self-pleasure and self-pleasing and a desire to please his own flesh. She knew that's what kind of man he was. This is, this is Judah. This is, this is the progenitor of Jesus. 
This is, this is the one from whom Jesus claims tribal descent. And he is absolutely wicked. Now, we'll talk about Tamar in a second and what she did, but you have to ask the question, is this it? Is that, you would think this is, this is bad enough, and yet notice that as the chapter goes on and as Judah's sin finds him out, that then he acts with self-righteousness and hypocrisy. When, when he hears that Tamar has acted as a harlot and has become pregnant, he, he commands that she's brought out and she's burned. Now, to understand how significant that is, you have to understand, number one, he has some sort of authority where he is because men obey him in bringing her out. He has some sort of leadership role. He's abusing his power. And number two... Um, being burned in that society was left for the most atrocious of crimes, murder and, and extremely wicked crimes, not what Timna does, not what Tamar does. And so, so it is over the top in his zeal, in his self-righteousness, in his hypocrisy. You see, here, here's a picture of the one from whom the Redeemer comes, and he is absolutely in every way whatsoever wicked and perverse and hypocritical. He is in every way fallen away from anything that looks like a godly man. And yet, and this is the really important thing, and yet, he is the one that God is going to manifest his grace in, he is the one from whom God is going to bring the Redeemer. He is the one that's going to be an example to every single person who has ever walked the face of the earth that it doesn't matter how wicked you are, how much wickedness you've done, how rebellious you are, you, ha- you are not beyond the pale of being an object of God's sovereign mercy and grace. And you know what? Our flesh hates that. We, we do not, we, we say we believe that, until somebody goes and does something extremely wicked that we say we would never do, and we treat them with the disdain as if they are beyond the pale of God's grace and mercy because we are deeply self-righteous people. We are deeply self-trusting people. We are, you know, I think about this all the time. When I was, when I was a young Christian, I didn't get it then, and I do now. My, one of my best friends said to me, you know why so many people dress up um, to go to church. And we're not talking about those that, that really, you know, they feel like this is a, a special event. I want to I wanna put on something nice that's good. God doesn't command it. Good for you. Um, I don't mean that demeaningly. I just mean there are people with right motives. Um, but, but I think my best friend's right when he said, he said, when you go to church, most people dress up because they want to put their best foot out. And when people say, how are you doing? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. You've had like the worst week ever because you want to look like you have it together. And then we come to a chapter like this and we see that just like the rest of the book of Genesis, every single person God is manifesting his grace to doesn't have it together. And that this is just more of the messiness of the church, more of the messiness of the people of God. And yet God goes to the worst. God goes to the worst. And God says, I am going to be gracious to the worst. I'm going to manifest my grace to the worst of sinners. This is what the Apostle Paul said, didn't he? In 1 Timothy, he says, I was a blasphemer and a murderer. I was, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm, I'm less than the least of all the saints. I'm not worthy for the grace of God, yet God manifested his grace to me and he showed mercy to me that I might be an example to those coming after me, that there is mercy and grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
That's the point of this chapter. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's grace. Well, let's look then secondly how there is grace and how God works the greatness of that grace out. Now, um, you see it first in Tamar's actions. Now, you might say, wait a minute. How, How do Tamar's actions show the grace of God at work? Because she plays a prostitute. That doesn't look any better than what Judah has done. And yet, remember, she knew that she needed offspring. She knew that God had said that a redeemer would come from the woman, and she knew that God's plan and purpose was for there to be offspring and descendants, and she is not moving outside to get it, outside of the the family from which she's in. She is trying to figure out a way to gain children by the family of which God had placed her. And, And remember, Judah had tricked her with uh, his third son. He had said, wait till he grows up and then you, can, then you can marry him. And he grew up and he didn't give her to him. And so Judah was to blame. And yet Tamar, in, in doing what she's doing, and it is, it is uh, sinful and it is wicked. And yet there is something in it that is, is somewhat virtuous. We're actually going to come to that because when she finally gives the signet and the staff to Judah, which singles him out as the man that has done this. He says, you are more righteous than me. He recognizes that what she did was to raise up offspring according to God's word, and that what he did was not only full of sexual immorality, but it was full of social injustice. He didn't care the least for this widow. She was his daughter-in-law. He didn't care about God's word, God's purposes, God's plan, God's redemption. And she had, in some sense, they both acted unrighteously. Neither of them are righteous. But she, in some sense, had acted with appropriate motives. And he acknowledges that he is more wicked than she is. And so you see God weaving this story together in order to bring about his plans. But you don't know. You don't know about the grace of God from this chapter uh, in in this rich and full way until you come to Matthew chapter 1. And you should know this. I hope you do. If you're reading through Jesus's genealogy in Matthew 1, you will find that there are four women, including the Virgin Mary. There are four women in Jesus's genealogy. There is Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, There is Ruth, the Moabite Gentile. There is the adulteress Bathsheba. And there is Tamar, the prostitute. In Jesus's genealogy, Tamar's person finds its way into the lineage of the Savior. And and it's not a coincidence that the four women in Jesus's genealogy are wicked women who did wicked things because all of us are wicked. And God is highlighting that the Savior would take that as his own. This is absolutely marvelous. Uh, John Calvin, I want to read this to you because it's so wonderful. John Calvin, as he enters in on this chapter, he says, although at first sight the dignity of Christ seems to be somewhat tarnished by such dishonor, yet here also is seen that emptying of which St. Paul speaks. It rather redounds to his glory than in the least detracts from it. First, we wrong Christ unless we deem him alone sufficient to blot out any ignominy arising from the misconduct of his progenitors. And then he says, second, we know that the riches of God's grace shine chiefly in this, that Christ clothed himself in our flesh with the design of making himself of no reputation. Lastly, it was fitting that the race from which he sprang should be dishonored by reproaches. 
that we, being content with him alone, might seek nothing besides him. I want to take the last two there and break those down for you. Calvin says, first, we look at a chapter like this, and we realize Genesis 38 is entirely about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why would he take such dishonor to himself in his genealogy? Why would he take that? I I like to imagine the Lord Jesus as a boy because he studied the scriptures. Though he was God over all, he is man, and he grew in wisdom and understanding. He learned the scriptures. Luke tells us that in chapter 2. And I like to think of Jesus learning about this and realizing this is for me. This is about my history. Why? Calvin says, because he came to be clothed with humility and humiliation. Jesus would take this on himself as his history because that's part of the humiliation that he would endure. Jesus would come and would be humbled to the lowest even by having this history put on him. I don't think one of you would admit to this being your history if this was in some ancestry box in your house. Jesus takes that on himself. And then Calvin says in his third point, I think this is just wonderful, he says it was fitting that the race, the, the, the Israelite, Israelitish people, from which he sprang should be dishonored by reproaches that we being content with him alone might seek nothing besides him. Here's the point. You look at this, and this is your genealogy, and you have nothing to boast in. If you're a Jew, and you're looking at this, and you're saying, that's my history, you can't say, you know what my great-great-grandfather did? And so you'll only trust in the Redeemer who can take away that reproach. That's the point of this chapter. Now, I want to talk just briefly as we close about Judah. God's grace doesn't come to Judah without repentance and without awakening. Um, This is supremely important because I would do you a disservice if I said, it doesn't matter how wicked you've lived, God's grace triumphs. It's true for those on whom he sets that grace. But equally true is that on those on whom he sets that grace, there will be the fruits of repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ. And that happens to Judah. There is fruit in his life. Notice that when Tamar gives the signet and the staff and Judah realizes, and it took that. And sometimes, I'm going to say this this morning, when God's grace comes into an individual's life, it often doesn't look like grace. It often looks like getting shocked to admit your sin. Because at the end of the day, you and me, we don't like admitting our sin. You and I. That wasn't sin, but it was a grammatical error. You and I, you and I don't like admitting our sin. And so it takes God shocking us out of our sin. It takes God shocking Judah to a place where he's realized that everything he's done, he's he's woken up, he's awakened. This is an awakening for Judah. He says, you are more righteous than I. And, And he's admitting he's doing the same thing the prodigal son did when it said he came to his senses. He's doing the same thing that happened to King David, his descendant, when Nathan comes and he says, you are the man. And yet he had acted with such hypocrisy and such rebellion. And yet God's grace comes. And he often deals with us painfully. And sometimes embarrassingly, to awaken us out of our sin and to give us that spiritual awakening that is so necessary for us to then go on and live in light of that grace. Judah will do that, by the way. You don't find that in this chapter. You find it at the end of the book of Genesis when Joseph is there and his brothers are before him and he's wondering 
if they recognize him still, if they've recognized him. And, and Joseph says, send Benjamin. I'll keep Benjamin. Go back. And Judah says, let me stand in the place of Benjamin. He's a different person. He says, let me substitute myself for my brother. Let me bear the reproach. Let me do the righteous thing. In that sense, Judah becomes a type of Christ. Isn't that amazing? He becomes a believer, and then he becomes a type of the Lord Jesus who descended from him. Now, I want to close this morning by saying a couple of things. Again, this is a shocking chapter. It's one, it's one that you, know, you may be uncomfortable with at points, and yet it's one that God the Holy Spirit has breathed out. And is given to you to build you up in Christ and to show you your need for Christ. And I think when we come to this chapter, we want to say, I may not look like Judah in every way that Judah looks rebellious. But where are there areas of my life where there is a departing from the Lord, a pulling back from the people of God, a loving the world, a acting as a self-interested father who doesn't raise my children or mother who doesn't raise my children to know the Lord, with sexual immorality in my life, with hypocrisy and self-righteousness and bitter vindictiveness and a lack of care for others, where are those things in my life and where do I need God's grace to come and awaken me? Where do I need the grace of God to awaken me in my life? Because you know what? I would rather have God do that for you from this passage through the preaching of the word than to have to do it to you in the way that he did it to Judah publicly. I would rather it happen under the preaching of the word for you and me than to have it happen in some sort of extreme embarrassing way. We're to come to terms with the fact. And then secondly, I want to say, as we close, one of the wonderful things about this chapter, and we're going to come to the table in a minute and experience this, there is a sense... There is a sense in which this chapter, and, and you have to listen carefully, there's a sense in which this chapter is, is blotted out of the genealogy of Jesus. Because he comes to take all that sin on himself and to cover that sin, to establish his people by his grace. He comes to wipe out the record of their transgressions. Judah and Tamar are in heaven right now, worshiping Jesus, right now. They are worshiping the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, right now, because he came to take the reproaches. I'm going to read this and close. Uh, again, Calvin said, we wrong Christ. Listen carefully. We wrong Christ unless we deem him alone sufficient to blot out any ignominy arising from the misconduct of his progenitors. I'll break that down. We wrong Jesus if we think that his blood is insufficient to take away all the guilt and all the reproach and all the shame of those from whom he descended. And then I'm going to say this morning and from you, because at the end of the day, the greatest thing that you need is the guilt, the power and the shame of your sin covered in the blood of Jesus. And he says, I've come, I've done everything necessary. I've been nailed to the cross. I've come to take away the shame and the reproach. I've come to make you part of my heavenly family, to claim you as my own. I have bought you with a price. I have laid down my life for you. I have put myself in your place. Trust in me. Believe in me. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for this portion of scripture and for all that it contains and how it fits so marvelously into your plan of redemption. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the lessons learned. We pray that we would learn them spiritually and that you would grant us grace that we might be awakened to our sin and our need for your grace. And Father, we pray that you would manifest your grace to us in large ways as you did to Judah and Tamar. We pray, our God, that you would help us to see that our Savior is altogether glorious to take this history as his history and to take the reproach for the sins of his ancestors, even as he takes ours. So have mercy on us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.